0: This podcast is part of our rare diseases series. The team at 4D thought it would be a good idea to produce this series to support physical therapists treating patients with rare diseases. We hope you find this information helpful. Please reach out with any podcast ideas or suggestions by emailing neuroddsig at gmail.com. Welcome to 4D, Deep Dive into Degenerative Diseases. Gaining insights through casual and
1: amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA. The information in this podcast is meant for the benefit of physical therapists. It is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and or treatment. Individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner with questions. I'm Jeff Schmidt, an outpatient neurologic physical therapist and a member of the podcast committee of the DD SIG. I'm excited to be here today with Kyle Reedy, who has actually been a mentor of mine throughout my career in the outpatient neuro world. Uh, He's our neurologic physical therapy division lead, a faculty member in our residency program, and has been a great resource for many clinicians over the past few years. I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell us a little bit more about his role in our system. Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me here.
0: Um, like Jeff said, my name is Kyle Reedy. Um, I'm a physical therapist practicing in Orlando, Florida. Um, I work for a company, Advent Health. Um, I have my board certified specialist um, in neurological physical therapy. I've been practicing in outpatient neuro since I was hired as a new grad in 2019. Um, in my current role in Advent Health, I function as the divisional neuro PT lead, and so I do a lot of mentoring, onboarding, um, standardization, and quality of care um, for our system as clinicians are hired and as they grow through the process. I also help a lot with our knowledge translation projects as uh, clinical practice guidelines come out, in collaboration with physicians. As well as I have a role in our residency program for physical therapy. I function as both a mentor on the outpatient side, as well as a faculty member and making sure the logistics of the residency and all the standards are met.
1: All right, so it sounds like you have a lot on your plate and I can definitely see that throughout the day, but I think you do a great job with all of those roles.
0: Thanks, it's a wear a lot of hats.
1: Sure, so today we're talking a little bit about spinal muscular atrophy, which is a rare neuromuscular disease that has a prevalence rate of one in every 100,000 people. Meaning that in the state that we live in, Florida, uh, there should be roughly 200 to 210 people living with spinal muscular atrophy or SMA currently. Uh, so that leads me to my question: With such few patients in, you know, the state of Florida with SMA, uh, how did you get involved with this population?
0: Yeah. So in our system, we work very closely with a lot of different physicians that specialize um, in uh, n- different neurological conditions. Our Neuromuscular physicians, we have two of them in our system now, but whenever they came into our system, they started uh, referring us a bunch of these other neuromuscular pathologies like charcomary tooth and included a spinal muscular atrophy. And they reached out to us saying that this uh, patient population needed authorization for medication and that they needed benefit from therapy. And so we started doing our due diligence of figuring out how to best care for them um, and treat them. And over that process, I really started to really appreciate this patient population. I thought they were very unique um, because the situation that we have in history right now, Um, because there was a medication to help change the disease process that came out in 2016. So a really big role for us is to be able to treat these patients and uh, get them their authorization. And over this time of seeing these ones over multiple years and learning how to manage these conditions and promote mobility has been a really fun challenge for me.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. And so for those listeners that may be not as familiar with SMA, would you mind just talking a little bit about what it is and how people with this disease might present in the clinic?
0: Yes. So spinal muscular atrophy is a rare hereditary neuromuscular condition. um, And what it boils down to is a genetic deficit in the SMN gene. This SMN gene is responsible for creating a protein that keeps cell health alive um, and keeps your motor neurons functioning well. Um, And what happens in spinal muscular atrophy is this gene has two copies. The normal uh, typical presentation is we have both copies, but in SMA, SMA patients, we will just have that second copy. The SMN1 um, is responsible for about 90% of our cell function and keeping it alive and functioning well. And so these SMA patients only have about 10% functioning uh, of this gene and protein. What this results in is uh, progressive muscle weakness. Uh, that's typical of a lower motor neuron presentation. And uh, you're just going to see a loss of mobility over the lifetime. This disease has varying severities to it, but it really comes down to this SMN2 copy, um, whether you have a few copies of it or multiple, um, is kind of d- explains the differentiations for it.
1: Sure. And so it sounds like with this population, dependent on how many SMN2 genes they have, uh, that change, changes their prognosis. It changes their lifespan. And I've, I've seen SMA be broken up into different types. Right. So um, from my understanding, it sounds like the different types of SMA are due to how much SMN2 gene someone might have. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So
0: the type of copies, it varies from whenever you would have one all the way up to eight. And so the number of copies causes certain particular presentation. So they classify these patients in the categories one through four, um, one being the most severe um, and four being the least severe. And then they break up each category based on when you start having symptoms and the maximum motor milestone that you achieve. For the most part, this is a pediatric population um, where you see the highest prevalence of these patients, um, but we do see these adult onset. So this type one, uh, these patients have very early onset, usually in the first six months of life, and they do not gain the ability to sit. We have type two where these patients do gain the ability to sit, but they do not gain the ability to walk. And so the onset of symptoms is around six to 18 months and then type three is where these patients do gain the ability to walk um, but they are expected to lose it with the natural process of the condition and there's that last one that's the type four that pops out Um, that's usually whenever they say late onset so these there are patients out there that are diagnosed um, in college later uh, and in later stages in life Um, but this is due to them having more copies of this smn gene
1: gotcha and something that I find pretty interesting is that with these types three, types four, where they're not diagnosed until a little bit later, um, I imagine it's probably hard to get a diagnosis because your signs are weakness, right? And so you go to your doctor and you say, hey, I'm having this weakness. And there's a lot of things that they're trying to rule in or rule out. Um, and so I, I guess it's just interesting to think that you might go, you know, a few years without actually getting a diagnosis of this. And that could be pretty hard on your, your, Presentation and your prognosis.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You definitely see that pop up um, here and there for those ones. Uh, what's really interesting, we had a patient that we were uh, that was in our clinic and our wellness program, um, and we were finding out about SMA. And someone goes, "I think this person has it." Um, and we ended up doing the genetic testing and got them treatment over time and connecting them to our neuromuscular uh, physician. what's interesting about it is for the longest time this was purely a degenerative process there was nothing we could do for it and so these kids um, regardless of what type they were they were frequently told you have this degenerative neuromuscular condition some of them do or don't remember what it's called and so then they were told to just continue living their life live the max quality of life and so you ended up with these adults that Oh, I was told I had this neuromuscular condition and there's nothing to do for it. So there's people walking around that have it, but may or may not remember what exactly it's called.
1: Yeah, that's, it's, uh, pretty crazy to think that exists now. I'd, I'd like to think that that's changed a little bit with some of the advancements that we've had in the medical, uh, treatment of SMA. So You know, we've had some new medications that have been FDA approved for treatment of SMA. So what are your thoughts on the impact that this medication has made on these people living with this disease? So the medications are huge. Uh, Just
0: a quick overview of it. There's three of them that exist out there. Um, There's an oral one um, that you take every single day. There's an injection that you take about every four months. And then their last one is a gene therapy that occurs in the first two months of life. Um, so I've had a lot more exposure to these first two and understand the research on the first two. Um, but what we've seen in the research is that the administer- administration of these medications, regardless of where you're at in the cycle, is stabilization of the disease process. So these patients that were expected to functionally decline over time, especially the most severe ones that have this type 1 presentation, We're seeing stabilization um, as in no decline. And even those young ones, when we have preserved nerve cells, they're actually starting to hit motor milestones that they weren't expected to hit um, in the first place.
1: It's pretty awesome. And I think that um, we've really seen a shift in the patients that have not been on medication to these patients that have been on medication. And it's really nice to see that, you know, we're asking them specific questions about things that are hard for them. And in the past we anticipate that they are going to lose their ability to do specific things. Right. Um, but now our questions are, what have you maintained the ability to do or what has gotten better for you? Which is something that we would have never really thought to ask patients with this disease, you know, 10 years ago. Right. Um, there's a specific patient that is at your, at our clinic. Right. And, he has improved his hand function to be able to play video games, right? And something like that is just a huge win for you know somebody. So I think it's really cool what the medication and the medical management of this population has done over the past few years. It's
0: definitely been an absolute flipping of the script um, of how you're approaching these interviews and what education you're trying to provide these patients um, that one specifically was really fun to work with because he said, just asking him, what would add quality to your life? What do you want to preserve? And he said, I want to continue to play video games. I'm not able to play as long. And uh, we got him into occupational therapy. And it's something that he's been able to preserve. And it's been so meaningful to him because that's how he functioned in his job is the small dexterity of the hands, um, as well as just his recreational activities. It's very fun to see
1: yeah, absolutely. Now, do you know with the medication, does that change the lifespan of of these patients?
0: There is no definitive research currently um, talking about lifespan. Um, the medication's only been out since 2016 as the first time it was approved by the FDA so they can't make definitive statements about if it has or hasn't. Um, But whenever we look at the research and some of the markers that they're picking apart um, as their endpoints, one of the most common ones is they're looking to see about ventilation. These patients frequently have very heavy complications with respiratory function, pneumonias and different aspects like that. And so they're looking to see, are these patients getting on dependent mechanical ventilation and that is decreasing uh, significantly, especially in the pediatric very severe presentations. So that endpoint of research studies is far less. So it's it's looking optimistic to be able to help preserve
1: life. Sure. Yeah, hopefully we'll we'll hear some some data to support that in the near future. Um but you know now that we know that this medication makes it possible for these people to maintain their function or potentially even improve their function. What is the role as physical therapist in management of SMA? So the
0: changes we've had in our roles in managing the patients with spinal muscular atrophy has really changed. There is this new aspect is one of our major uh, roles and one of our major factors I would encourage everybody to be comfortable with and getting comfortable is uh, observing and monitoring functional changes in these patient population. Um, The reason why is these medications are expensive, and part of their authorization process to initiate as well as continue on the medication requires a physical assessment. And more so, the physical assessment requires specific functional outcome measures that are specific to spinal muscular atrophy and validated in spinal muscular atrophy. The most common ones that you're going to see is the Hammersmith, uh, the revised upper limb, and then you're going to see the MFM32, which is more commonly used in Europe. Those are the ones that we see in our adult populations. Um, And then you can see the chop and tend uh, for the more pediatric patient populations. So performing these outcome measures um, and being able to explain changes and variations um, is a very big part of our assessment that we wanna be doing regularly, um, at least on a yearly basis for these patient populations. Then when we go over to what we do in kind of the rehab process um, outside of this is going to be promoting independence um, for these patients as much as possible. Like I said, in 2016 is this new change in what the prognosis for these patients look like. And so a lot of what we have to do is start educating these patients on we have an opportunity to preserve function over time. We want to make sure that we're exercising We want to make sure that we're promoting as much activity throughout the day so we're not having secondary disuse on top of um, the disease pathology. And so we're really trying to advocate for these patients to change their mental um, preparation into the disease process to get a new sense of ownership. And the third part I would say is uh, medical um, devices um, and durable medical equipment. These patients, um, if they've had a very long progressive diagnosis, that they were ambulators at one point, and at some point they're not, they need power wheelchairs with very good seating and positioning to promote respiratory function, as well as there's a high incidence of contractures in this patient population. So we want to get them in bracing and stretching programs. So that is the very quick overview of what it kind of looks like to manage these patients.
1: Sure. And... Just going off that, you know, we talked about different types of SMA and we talked about how based on when their symptoms progress or present themselves in their life, that that might affect their prognosis and their overall presentation. Um, Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's different categories of this population. People that are sitters, non-sitters, walkers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, do they have the ability to sit? Do they have the ability to walk based on when did their symptoms really start? And so would your treatment really differ a whole lot from patients in different categories? Yes.
0: Treatment varies a lot for these patient populations, depending on their functional uh, presentation at time evaluation. As I talked about earlier, we have the types one through four, meaning about the main motor milestone. Um, So if you're a type three patient, which means that you gained the ability to walk and then you lost the ability to walk over time, this doesn't mean you become type two. but This is where it was kind of tricky into uh, a language that we've had to adapt is and we're classifying as how they present functionally at that day where we have that non sitters, sitters and walkers that you were talking about. And so whenever we have our walkers, um, so those highly mobile patients that do have preserved function, this is whenever we are really treating these patients as much as possible um, and performing uh, more therapeutic interventions trying to look for improvements on outcome measures um, and different aspects like that. But then if you shift to the other side of the spectrum where we have our non-sitters or purely sitters, um, these are the patients where it's a lot more about managing their condition and caregiver education. Uh, How do you make sure that they're optimized? Are you connecting them with resources? Are we getting them bracing to preserve mobility? Do they still have a capacity in the range of motion to get on a standing program and then getting them a stander or maybe even a power wheelchair that can do a standing function? Um, So it's really about more of the management and education piece that we play such a critical role in.
1: Cool. So the patients that you and I see are more so diagnosed later in life. They are typically classified as more so sitters and walkers. Um, Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they're a little bit more mobile, right? What are your thoughts? What can you tell us about exercise recommendations and maybe how this has changed uh, as our medical management has shifted a little bit? Are there any resources for PTs or specific guidelines that might help us treat these individuals with SMA?
0: There are resources out there that can help us manage or kind of give recommendations to how to uh, provide good care to patients with spinal muscular atrophy. There's a couple of reviews that have been published over the years, um, but a good thing I would encourage people if they're looking at articles to try to look at articles past the date of probably 2018, because that's when we first started to see the essential current area era of where we're at, of are they receiving disease-modifying therapies? Um, so that's a really big factor when you start looking into it. But there's a couple of uh, general recommendation guides that go into stretching, aerobic exercise, bracing, that talk through a lot of it. But what exists right now um, that we can definitively say is these patients should absolutely be stretching. If you have your non-sitters, they should be stretching up to five days a week, holding it for 60 minutes So standing programs really need to be ideal for these patients. But when we shift to the patients that we're seeing right now uh, that I'm working with primarily where we have our functional sitters and our functional ambulators, Um, The recommendations get very vague where they say you should be doing resistance training, you should be doing aerobic activity, but there's no clear guidelines or effective research. There's been randomized control trials that have looked at uh, providing resistance training, and then what they're mainly finding and mainly concluding is that it's safe um, and that it may be beneficial. One of the pediatric uh, articles that was published recently that looked at Um, a disease-modifying therapy and then pairing essentially exercise, aerobic training, and different uh, resistance trainings by going to therapy five days a week, Um, compared to the people who were just receiving um, the disease-modifying therapy, found about three to four-fold increases in improvements on their functional outcome measures over testing times. So we see in these patients that have preserved motor function that Exercise is highly recommended, but the exact details are a little bit uh, gray.
1: Sure. Do you think that we might be able to utilize some of our other exercise recommendations uh, for other motor neuron diseases like post-polio or ALS? Yeah, the best
0: um, thing we can do is
1: try to conclude from other
0: exercises um, based on conditions that are very similar. Postfolio and ALS are very uh, similar presentations where we have that degradation of the alpha motor neuron, um, a little bit different in the location if we have upper motor neuron as well. But that's how I'm basically um, treating these patients as I go into these moderate intensities with them. Um, I like to measure heart rate response during aerobic response. I think they should be around 60 to 65%. They do struggle with fatigue ability, so you want to measure intensity and monitor their subjective rates of fatigue um, as they're doing these exercises and working through their programs. And the same thing with resistance programs. Um, we can, if pain is a really big factor, isometrics are a good, uh, good option, um, but overall resistance training is great. And more so whenever we consider these patients Um, and when doing the resistance programs, um, I like to look and consider how much muscle function that they have. So if they have generally active range of motion or able to move through most of the motion against gravity, these are the patients I really try to promote resistance training for. Um, and trying to load these muscles. If I have less than that or any partial ranges, maybe even just trace muscle contractions, um, those are not the muscle groups I would normally target, um, just due to preserving, not trying to cause any more muscle damage through what's not preserved, but really targeting anything in all movements that we can.
1: Sure. And I I think that I'd like to point out that, you know, as PTs, I think something we might be able to do just a little bit better about is not necessarily just assessing somebody's response to strength training at that current time, right? Uh, you may, they may tell you, hey, that was good. I'm fine. I feel great. You know, RPE of six out of 10. But what I think is also equally as important is when they get home, how did they feel? How did they feel the next morning, right? So I think it's important for us to be asking them. Hey, after last session, how did you feel? Did you have any increase of your symptoms? How was your fatigue levels? Was it harder for you to get out of bed? Uh, And I think that that's a good way that we can also assess intensity. Uh, That's what I utilize a lot for my MS patients that have high fatigue levels. And uh, would you agree that that might be something that we can utilize in our SMA population? Absolutely. Um, Just kind of educating them and giving them a really good
0: understanding of what normal and abnormal responses to exercise. Is really important for these patient population. Um, for example, teaching them about muscle cramping and teaching about delayed onset muscle soreness, as well as any other signs that you would say that is too much. So, if we're causing any fasciculations or muscle cramping the day after, this could be really detrimental to these patients. Um, they're walking, especially if they have this adaptation of walking where they rely on hyperextension of the knee for stability and upper extremity support. Um, If we're having cramping of any muscle group, it can very easily throw off their balance. Um, They have a very specific walk and like their space usually when they walk because it is a little bit of a balancing act. So teaching them what that is and what's there, um, I could not emphasize enough uh, really educating delayed onset muscle soreness for patients. Uh, I think it's a little underutilized, um, especially in neuromuscular populations of how or when will you feel these symptoms? When will they go away? What you should you be doing in the meantime? Um, is it okay to do light exercise to try to mobilize the joints and prevent um, any further um, tightening of joints? Um, it's just a really good way to set up them and help them know how to progressively work through the essential side effects of resistance training.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for expanding upon that. Um, Something that I wanted to highlight is the multidisciplinary clinic day that you have created throughout our system. And you've recently submitted a poster to CSM to talk a little bit more about this clinic day that you've created with some multidisciplinary team members. So I'd love for you to dive in a little bit on that topic to tell us how it's impacted your patients.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we started this multidisciplinary clinic day. Um, we have a few of them we do in our system currently, such for Parkinson's, tremors, um, ALS, uh, and other muscular dystrophies. But I wanted to uh, do a better job, especially on the rehab standpoint, of uh, providing a very holistic, uh, well-approached care um, for these patients. More so, these patients struggle with fatigue and endurance, and now there are factors like that that we want to make it as easy for them as possible and so what we did is we brought in our social worker that works in our system we have a physical therapist an occupational therapist a respiratory therapist a durable medical equipment provider with an atp as well as a a dynamic bracing company and so we have all of them there so we can essentially address as many of the needs as we can go as possible And so this has been really nice for our patients. Um, They very much so appreciated getting a very clear picture of what's going on and getting as many variables into understanding their disease process, um, as well as where they're seeing stabilization. Um, And I couldn't emphasize enough all the roles uh, that everybody have, as in how we can better contribute by all being in the room with each other. One thing that's really stood out to me in the process um, that's been really growing is the access to the respiratory therapist. Um, these patients uh, frequently have uh, respiratory complications. Um, they also have contractures and frequently have spinal deformities. Um, and so promoting respiratory function is complicated. Um, and so this past uh, week, we were talking with them And they really helped me understand some more screening questions such as, are these patients waking up with headaches in the morning? Could be signs of them not oxygenating well or retaining carbon dioxide um, while they're reading. Educating these patients, not just to power tilt for pressure relief, but also to try to maximize and perform respiratory functions throughout the day. So it's really nice, the holistic um, approach that we have to these patients. And how we can really just maximize and just continue to keep these patients uh, monitored over time.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And it's really cool to hear you talk about respiratory therapists in that role. Um, I think that our acute care therapists and maybe inpatient rehab therapists have great relationships with respiratory therapists because they're working a little bit closer. But in the outpatient world, at least for us, you know, we don't really see them as much. And we have a lot of patient populations that do struggle from respiratory issues. Um, And so it's really nice to see that you've introduced them to the team, especially for a disease like this where the respiration is so affected. So I think it's really great, all the work that you're doing to to support these patients.
0: It's been a really fun process um, just to kind of learn and collaborate and better care for these patients. access is so critical to these patients. Um, Their pediatric life, they're having access to these multidisciplinary clinics, neurologists, um, and everyone that can provide this care for them. But I think I saw a study um, looking at Europe and how spinal muscular atrophy patients are having access to care. And it was about 90% of them had access to access to neurologists but it dropped down to about 60 percent even having access to physiotherapists so we're just seeing that access to care is a really big barrier and that was a really big motivation for me that if we can just at least start and create an opportunity for them it will help out cool the other part of the clinic um, is also just preparing for the future these patients uh especially when we consider the Um, ones with low copies that are getting, um, all these, uh, disease modifying therapies at younger ages, um, lifespan is likely going to be affected and living into more and more adulthood. Um, but they're very likely to have complications, um, such as gaining weight and not being strong enough or falls with having fractures. So it's kind of just preparing our system to be able to absorb these patients as they graduate out of, uh, pediatric clinics, um so we can better just be prepared to see all these patients that are coming for us.
1: Right. Very cool. So one of the things that I would love to know is you have some of these therapists around the country, you know, treating individuals with SMA that may not have a ton of experience with it. What are some main takeaways that you would like them to know so they can bring into the clinic tomorrow? First is
0: getting comfortable with functional testing. Um, there are specific outcome measures that need to be done for authorization for them. And they're very particular into how they score. Um, the MCDs for these uh, outcome measures are usually two or three. And so just kind of going from partial to full is very meaningful um, on any of these functional tasks that they're performing. So. There are PDFs of uh, these out there um, that you can follow and booklets um, that are very easily accessible. Connecting with the pharmaceutical companies um, out there, they have really good resource teams um, and care managers that can help you know exactly which outcome measure is needed for authorization and going through that process. The other aspect uh, that would encourage that people to know about whenever you see this SMA patient um, in front of you is be um, curious about treating them. Um, Like I said, the research out there isn't the most definitive right now because we are in this really unique time in history where we have emerging therapies. Um, So be ready to um, try new things. Aquatics have been promising uh, for patients body weight support treadmills on the table, trying new case studies um, and applying things that you're seeing in other patient um, populations that may be comparable. The last part is getting comfortable with education um, and letting these patients know that they do have hope um, and that the research is very promising. Um, Not that we're trying to promise them that they're going to get better or any aspect like that, but really letting them know what to expect while going through the different DIA, disease modifying therapies that we are expecting at least stabilization of the disease process. And we have very promising results if we can pair therapies with it and activity um, to just maximize um, what's going on.
1: Well, those are, those are all very great tips and tricks that we can utilize. And I would encourage everyone that wants to get creative with different interventions and, Uh, different case studies to write write your own case study, right? We need more research in this population, try new things and and write about it. There's a lot of us that want to know about the success that you're having with your patients. Like you said, the
0: disease is very rare. Um, There's only a a few hundred expected to be in the state of Florida. Um, We've seen and worked with about 20 to 30 of them. Um, and so almost every single one of them is going to be a case study. Um, we've worked with some just even just trying other things like pairing neuromuscular electrical stimulation that we found in a case study. Um, this helped the patient kind of recover from a femur fracture and regain the ability to walk. So it was really fun to kind of work through and it was attributed to the prior case studies. So,
1: Absolutely. So uh, thanks so much for talking about SMA. Uh, it's been a really good conversation. Before we wrap up, I would like to know. It's a tradition that we do on the DD SIG. Uh, what do you typically do in your free time? It sounds like you do wear a lot of different hats. And so free time may be a little bit sparse. Um, what do you typically do? Uh
0: I love playing sports. Um, I hop around a lot between sport to sport. Uh I've played Ultimate Frisbee for a long time, beach volleyball. Um, I play ball uh, ball golf and disc golf, um, and I've been recently getting into uh, pickleball. Um, so it's hard for me to stay still, so all these things kind of help me help me burn energy.
1: Yeah, pickleball's taken off.
0: It's wild. it's it's incredibly addicting. I was like, I don't think I'm gonna like it. Um, I don't know if I'm gonna want to, and I'm trying to find ways to kind of play it regularly now. Uh, for all of you who are afraid or like no i won't Uh, it's a lot more like ping pong and just on a giant (laughs) tennis court
1: (laughs) awesome all right well thank you so much for joining us today Uh, we've learned a lot from you it's been really a great conversation i
0: love being here thank you so much for having me
1: this podcast was produced and edited by the anpt degenerative diseases special interest group podcast team for more information on this SIG and AMPT, visit www.neuropt.org. Our podcast team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Christina Burke, Ken Vanacco, Shannon Brown, Harm Paget, and I'm Jeff Schmidt. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. Please share this episode with a colleague today.
0: We can put it in the bloopers. We'll put it in the bloopers.
1: How was it? I blacked out. I lost my train of thought. All right, we'll move on and let the power of editing help us out, right? Power of
0: editing, cut that one off real <laughs> early, okay. so you can listen and make sure that we didn't, like, you know, make you sound like I don't know the devil or something. <laughs> I'm sure Jeff would never do that
1: to me. Parm and I were were betting that you were going to mm-hmm. introduce your cat during your hobbies.
0: Oh, yeah. I wanted to. I, I decided <laughs> to stay normal. I I was sitting there contemplating it's like I really don't do much like I stay busy with work uh I'm trying to get my cat's Instagram to blow up um, <laughs> live in la vida loki uh 2020 I was really like 50/50 all the way up until the end so <laughs>